Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in Hosea 7 tonight as we continue to work our way through the first of the minor prophets. By way of introduction, it's been an interesting week as I've continued getting feedback to this particular series. You might recall that back when we were in the book of Exodus, we talked about the very common theory, the very common theological construct that says that, or that presumes that, the law can be divided into three subcategories, that there's a civil law and there's a religious law and that there's a moral law. And then the folk who do that kind of dividing of the law will say that the religious law is done away with in Christ, but that the moral law, the moral rules count for everybody during all time, and that the civil rules, at least some of them, counted for Israel particularly, but are still good for America now, blah, blah, blah. And what I really pointed out during that time was that it's a nice theory, but that when you dig down into the details, it just doesn't work. Because as you read the law, it leaps in single sentences from rules that you would call a moral law straight into a civil law or straight into a religious law. They're so deeply intertwined and so interrelated that we saw that the theory simply doesn't hold. And of course, as I pointed out repeatedly, no New Testament author does that. Certainly Paul, when writing about or talking about the law, always refers to the law as the law. And never does he differentiate between moral laws or civil laws or religious laws versus any other kind. Instead, he saw what he called the law and the precepts, the Ten Commandments and the 316 rules, and just that's all the law. Everything that came from Mount Sinai, everything that came from Moses was the law. Now, I said that to kind of create a mindset because the responses I've been getting the last couple of weeks to this series that we're teaching now has been very, very interesting because there is a theory out there that says that the church is, quote-unquote, the true Israel. In fact, I had a fellow write to me just recently and say that he is enjoying the teaching, but he disagrees. I'll tell you about the source of the disagreement in just a moment. But one thing that he kept arguing was that I seem to be presenting the concept of Israel replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel. And he disagreed with that and said, no, the church doesn't replace Israel because they're one and the same to begin with. So there's no replacement going on. Well, that's an interesting distinction. Perhaps it's a distinction without a difference. But this idea of the church being true Israel permeates especially much of the Reformed church. Many of our Reformed brethren believe in covenantal, amillennial kind of thinking, 
and they very comfortably mix and match Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. And that's a nice, comfortable, theoretical way to approach the Bible until you dig into the details. Now, what was interesting about why he disagreed with me, I don't remember if it was the same fellow or a different one, because I've had a couple of people write to me about this. But he said that, I'm enjoying your Wednesday night teaching, but I disagree with your approach to the church and Israel as separate entities because I disagree with your, quote, interpretation. Have you noticed how little I've been interpreting ever since we hit Hosea? What have I been doing? Reading. I'm just reading. Everybody in the room said it. Reading. You're just reading. That's why we can bite off several chapters in a night. Because the texts are so plain on their face. The language is so obvious that I don't have to convince anybody of anything. I just read. And the details tell their own story. And as long as the details are telling their own story well, then I'm perfectly willing to just let it sit there because it says what it says. Now, the only time that I've engaged in any kind of interpreting, and I'll do a little bit of it tonight, is whenever we come across an archaic Hebraism or some turn of a phrase that's not familiar to us anymore. Then I'll have to say, well, this is what this means. This is probably where it is. But in terms of interpreting Israel and the church, I've done virtually no interpreting. But it's just easier for people to go, well, I don't like the way you're reading it. I've told you that story before about a person who disagreed with our view of God's sovereignty and election. And when I read a chunk of, uh, I think it was Romans 9, I think, that I read to her. And I said, do you agree with that? And the answer was, well, not the way you read it. <laughs> you know, and, yeah, and that's kind of the response to this day where the church Israel stuff is concerned you can read it, and you can say, here are the details, here's what it says. And they'll say, uh, no, the church is Israel, Israel is the church, and the church is true Israel. All believers, Jew and Gentile, who believe in Christ become true Israel. And they go to the same couple of texts, they make the same argument. Well, so I was sent a link to a series that is going on right now on Sunday mornings, a fellow down in Texas who is ostensibly reformed, but I don't know that much about him. What I've heard so far doesn't sound particularly reformed. But he's teaching on amillennialism. And he began by saying, we're just going to go with the simplest stuff. We're not going to get caught up in all the complicated stuff like the book of Revelation. So he said, you know, Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, that stuff gets very complicated. So we're not going to look at that. We're just going to go with the real simple stuff. The third or fourth lesson in his series is uh, who is the true Israel? I looked at it this week. And once he got done saying that the church is Israel and Israel is the church, he made this statement. And since he put it out there on the Internet, I have no fear of saying it because it's, it is yet again one of those very common assumptions that simply can't be proven when you get into the details. He said, if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a Christian, then every promise you find anywhere in the Bible, New or Old Testament, every Old Testament promise in there belongs to you. Now, of course, the problem with that is when you get into the details. 
because it's easy to take the big concepts and allegorize them. Like, it's easy to say, well, Israel was promised a land, but what that means is true Israel gets heaven. Okay, well, that's just real comfortable, and it's easy, and you don't have to get into the details. But when you dig down into the details, as we've been seeing the last few weeks, it's the same people group that God scattered that he says he's going to bring back. And it's from the same land that he sent them out that he says he's going to bring them back in. The details matter. It's only if you start with a presupposition. It's only if you start with a system. It's only if you start with a big overarching church replacement, Israel replacement type theology that you end up making those kind of broad, just flat, plain, wrong statements. There is no way that I can look you in the eye as blood-bought Christian people and say to you, every promise in the Old Testament belongs to you. Because there are promises in the Old Testament like Jeremiah promising Israel that when they go into the Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, they'll only be there for 70 years. That's a promise in the Old Testament. Okay, how does that apply to you, Jeff? Yeah, it just doesn't. So, okay, you're in the Old Testament and you dig out a promise. Does that belong to you? No, it just doesn't because it's when you look at the details that you recognize that those big sweeping allegorical systems just don't work. It's too easy to say the church is the true Israel and then ignore the fact that, yes, it's absolutely true that within the church, within Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, free nor bond. Yes, absolutely, I agree with that statement. But that doesn't change the fact that you still have unbelieving national Israel, who Paul writes about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and says his heart's desire would be that they were saved. And then in chapter 11, he actually deals with them in saying that after the full number of the Gentiles has come in, then he says all Israel will be saved, and then he defines them and says, as touching the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. Okay, well then who are they? They're still Israel. Paul still calls them Israel. I guess they're not true Israel because they're not in the church, which is true Israel. But they still exist as a people group who who God is still dealing with because Paul then says about them, as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Okay, well here's this separate people group called Israel who are enemies of the gospel. So they're not the church. And as touching the election, beloved by God because of promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where do they fit into that the church is Israel paradigm? Well, they don't. They don't fit anywhere, but the Bible has a place for them. So if your system cannot deal with the various different groups and the various different statuses that the Bible describes, then your system's just faulty. It makes some of the Bible untrue. It makes parts of the Bible untrue, but more importantly, I felt bad for the people who were sitting at the church in Texas listening to this man tell them that. 
and saying, every promise in the Bible belongs to you. Okay, well, that makes me feel real good about me. I mean, woo every promise in the Bible belongs to me. But it wasn't even hard to find one real fast that I could say to Jeff, how does that apply to you? And he says, well, it doesn't. And I can find lots of examples like that of promises in the Old Testament that God makes to Israel that just don't apply to the church at all. Right. Like if you let the land rest for a right. year. Every 50 years, there's a jubilee in Israel. And on that 50th year, everything goes back within Israel to the boundaries that God assigned to the tribes when he put them in the land. How does that apply to you, Marilyn? Not at all. Not at all, no. And if I was going to try to apply it to you, how much twisting would I have to do to the scripture to get it to apply to you? Right. So I say all that to say, if we just let the details speak, which is what I've been doing, I'm just reading, I'm not interpreting, and if we let the details speak, they will tell their own story. And the hardest thing for people to do is to unlearn all the baggage that they've learned in church growing up, or all the theological systems that they've been force-fed depending on their background or their denominational affiliations. You got to let all that set aside so that you can just see what the Bible itself says. And what the Bible itself says is that national Israel, a particular people group, have been chosen by God and that he made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a covenant with King David. He made promises to them that have not yet come true that must come true or God's word is not true. And if you excuse or allegorize those promises or just say that they all belong to the church, I think in many ways that's tantamount to saying that the word of God is not perspicuous on its own, that it's not trustworthy on its face, that you can't just read it and understand it. And I say no. I say the Bible means what it says because basic rule. How many times have I said this, but I'm going to say it one more time. If the words on the page don't mean what they say, then we have no idea what they mean. Because they either mean what they say, or they mean something else. And if they mean something else, how do we determine what they mean? We have no way of knowing what they mean, because they don't mean what they say. The words that the original author chose to use, he chose to use because those words best conveyed the meaning he was attempting to pass on to us. But if he used those words but meant something else, he would have said something else. But he said this because this is what he meant. And so we have to take the Bible at face value, and we have to understand the words on the page to mean what they say. And if they don't mean what they say, then jump ball. It doesn't matter. Whatever anybody says they mean, that's what they mean. And nobody can know anything. And truth is completely porous. And we can just bend and twist the scripture at will because there's no way of knowing. Yes, ma'am. Don't you think that institutionalized training grounds for pastors have distorted the word as much as anything else? Unquestionably. For the people on the internet, what Marilyn said in her very soft-spoken voice, <laughs> that she said, well, don't you think that it's institutionalized religious training places. She's speaking of seminaries. I didn't want to use the word. But that's okay. I mean, that's what you meant. 
that too often they are the source of a lot of this misinformation, and they are. Because far too often, I don't want to go down this road very far, but too often what you end up with is seminarians who are attempting to impress seminary professors, and they end up writing and thinking for other seminarians. And so you have this sort of closed group of theological intellectuals who think and write for other theological intellectuals, as opposed to being able to talk about and explain the things of God in a way that the common people hear it. Jesus, it says, the common people heard him gladly. And it's because he was right there where they were talking to them in a way that they understood about things that they understood. And so that's why I've never been a fan of that kind of ivory tower theology. I prefer, like Paul, to say five words understood. Yes? The academic imperative is you have to find something new. Well, you know, <laughs> to find something new uh, in the Bible is to make it up. If somebody goes, I have discovered something in the Bible that no one's ever seen before, then you need to be concerned because the likelihood that 2,000 years of churchmen miss this, but you got it, not likely. Here, I'll just tell you this and then we'll actually dig in. I told you I was at a conference several years ago where there was a guy who just allegorized like mad, just allegorized his silly face off. And, um, and he got done and got off the platform, and, and he made a comment about, uh, boy, uh, I don't think you all have ever seen that in that text before. <laughs> and Elder Ward said, I don't think anyone's ever seen that in that text before. <laughs> it's just not in there, you know, so... All right, we are actually in Hosea 6. Now, the problem at this moment with Israel that God is really going to emphasize in the next two chapters, remember, he's continuing to lay out his case against them, and these middle chapters have been really rough because God is really accusing Israel over and over again, and he's emphasizing different aspects of their rebellion against him, and it all kind of centers around the fact that they're chasing after these foreign gods. They're going after the gods of the Arameans and the Syrians and the Egyptians. And so God is laying out his case that he is rightfully judging them because of their rebellion against him. This is where far too many people stop. They're absolutely right up to that point to say God gave Israel the law. God laid out his law and his precepts. He included blessings and cursings in the law. He said, if you do it, I'll bless you. If you don't do it, I'll curse you. God is keeping his word because he's true to his word. They did not keep his law, so they're going to undergo the curses that are attendant to the law. And far too many people stop right there and say, and that's the end of Israel. Because they did, after all, rebel against God, and now they're under the curse of God, the church. And they just move straight to there. But as we've noticed over and over and over again from many, many different passages, God doesn't stop there. He says, yes, you're guilty. You're really, really guilty. You're very, very guilty. And I'm going to forgive you because of promises I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of the promise of a covenant I made with David. David's greater son has to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. He has to rule over the collective 12 tribes because I said so. And then you get into the New Testament and you see things like Jesus saying to his apostles, you will sit on 12 thrones. 
in the regeneration, you're going to sit on 12 thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. Judging is the word. You're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, what does that tell you about the future of the 12 tribes of Israel? I mean, what are they going to do? Are they, is he going to say, okay, guys, here's your 12 thrones. Oh, great. Where's Israel? It's the church. You get to the book of Revelation, you see uh, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who are delineated by name. Those are those kinds of complicated details that these fellows don't want to talk about. Or then you get to the New Jerusalem in chapter 21, and it is built on the foundations of the 12 apostles, and it has 12 gates, three gates on each of the four sides, and over the names of the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that puts the 12 tribes of Israel in the new Jerusalem. It's called Jerusalem, for goodness sake. Oh, what the apostles built. Yeah, built on the foundation of the apostles. So again, I simply don't see how you eliminate national Israel from the conversation, despite what we're reading here in Hosea chapter 6. Now, I began to say the problem with Israel that he's now going to address is that they are doing exactly what Elijah talked about back in 1 Kings when he went up against the priests of Baal. And he addressed the Israelites and he said, how long will you halt between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. But what Israel nationally was attempting to do was worship the Baals. Remember that Ever since uh, Jeroboam, they had their two golden calves. So they didn't have to go all the way to Jerusalem anymore to keep the feasts and stuff. They could have their religious feasts in uh, Dan and in Beersheba, where they had their golden calves. And they also uh, were up on the high mountains, where they were worshiping Baal. And they were also in the groves, where they were worshiping Ishtar and the Queen of Heaven. And trying to worship God, too. Trying to worship Yahweh, too. And so God is a very, very exclusive God. God is a very singular God who started right off with rule number one. I've got ten commandments for you. Number one, no other gods. Start right there. No other gods. So what's the first thing they do? Other gods. And so this is what God is repeatedly accusing them over and saying, you keep halting between two ideas, two things, and you got to pick sides. you got to finally go with God is God or admit that you're chasing after your foreign gods and you're guilty, but you can't have both. And you see this a lot in the Bible. You even see Jesus saying in the book of Revelation, I would that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Always God is looking for absolute devotion. So the way that he's going to describe them here is that he's going to say that they're like a a cake that's been left in the oven and hasn't been turned. The image being that they're burned on one side and uncooked on the other. So he says, that's what you're like. You've got two different sides. You've got the fully cooked to burn side And you've got the gummy, uncooked side, and that's what you're like. You're still between the two sides, the two opinions. What did you say, Gladys? Unedible. Inedible, absolutely. Unappealing. So here we are in chapter, did I say six? We did chapter six last week. Chapter seven. That's where we're beginning. When I would heal Israel, 
the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered. So here's God still saying, I'm perfectly willing to heal Israel, perfectly willing to restore them, perfectly willing to do it. But every time that I'm willing to do that, your iniquity rises up over and over again. The iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered. And the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely, and the thieves enter in, bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their heart that I remember all their wickedness. Now, that's just such common human thinking. The biggest problem, I have often said, that we have in modern society, the modern godless society, is that people have just been getting away with it for so long that they just assume God either doesn't know or doesn't care because he's not doing anything about it. I mean, after all, we keep codifying and putting into our laws things that God calls abominable. And then, nothing. No earthquakes dividing Washington, D.C. in two. You know the phrase that if, uh, if God doesn't judge San Francisco soon, that he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. It conveys a reality that we're getting so bad that even the secular world lately and the secular press has been using language like it's, it's worse than it's ever been. It's really confusing and it's really gotten bad and because everybody knows it. Everybody can feel it. We all know that it's, it's just getting real strange and dark out there. And so here's God saying, here's what they haven't considered. They have not considered in their heart that I remember all of it. You get to the book of Revelation and the way the judgment is described each person that stands before God, the books are open, says the language, and every man is tried by his works out of what's written in the books, which means that everything you've said, done, thought, your lifetime is summarized in a scroll, in a book somewhere in heaven. They're keeping records. I don't know how that all works. I'm just telling you what the description is. Which means that when people stand before God, he's going to be able to give them names, dates, places, details. This is what you said. This is what you did. Jesus said that in the judgment, men are going to give account for every idle word. Now, the fact that they include the word idle in there, the fact that Jesus said every idle word, means that you're not going to be able to say, I didn't mean it. No, I was just goofing. I was like, no, no, no. See, aren't you glad you're not going to be in the judgment? Because I could not account for every idle word. I've said far too many terrible things in my life. Then you add my thoughts to that? Well, forget it. Forget it. I'd have to show up. They'd open the books, and they'd go, let's talk. And i go, no, just don't bother. I'm good. Just judge me because I have no plea whatsoever. Here's what they don't remember. Here's what they don't consider in their hearts, that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them and they are before my face. Okay, God speaking, first person. All their deeds are right here where I can see them. I remember everything they said and did. Which makes sense if you're talking about an infinite God who has all knowledge. Then he would in fact know everything all the time, constantly. He'd have no forgetfulness, 
and everything that people said and did, especially these people who are his chosen people, these people who he has given approach to him and means of worship of him that no other group of people on the planet has ever had. Covenants and promises and prophets and laws that no other people group has ever had. So they're really, really responsible and very, very guilty before God who says everything you've ever done is right here in front of my face. You can't plead ignorance. I know it all. With their wickedness, they make the king glad. Okay, remember historically where this fits. We've been reading in First and Second Kings the succession of evil, evil kings in the north. And as the kings have been growing progressively worse and worse and worse, culminating in like Ahab and Jezebel in that period of time, but then it, it continues to just slide downhill past Ahab. And so God says, not only are they evil, but that makes their king happy. That's how the corrupt they are as a nation. And their princes are happy with their lies. They are all adulterers. Like an oven heated by a baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Okay, here's one of those archaic Hebraisms I mentioned earlier. I read several commentaries and then finally read a couple of rabbi commentaries to see what this phrase means. And the most common assumption is, here's what you need to know. First off, for a baker, if he was going to make a bread that was going to rise, the dough had to be kneaded so that you would put the leaven into it. But then you had to wait. You had to wait for the bread to rise. Right, Jennifer? You make bread. You put the leaven in there, and then you have to wait. So he says, they're like a baker that turns the oven all the way up. But then they have to wait on the dough. They already have their evil plans. They already know what it is they're going to do, and it's burning all this time in anticipation of the evil they're going to do. That's as close to an explanation as I found that went where I went, okay, well, that kind of fits the context of what's being said. And then that's made even clearer when we get to verse 6, because verse 5 says, on the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine, and he stretched out his hand with scoffers. So he's talking about the evil kings. Their chief goal is to become sick with wine, over-drinking, over-stuffing themselves, and then stretching out their hands with scoffers, embracing scoffers, bringing in all the evil people. And then verse 6 is similar to verse 4, for their hearts are like an oven. As they approach their plotting, their anger smolders all night, like the oven that's lit, but you don't stir it up until the leaven has gone through the dough. Their anger smolders all night, and then in the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers, and all their kings have fallen, and none of them calls on me. Okay, so... Again, a strange example, but God trying to find common examples that they would understand. He says, this is what you're like. You're inflamed with your passion for sin. Your desire to do evil smolders through the night. You can't wait for another day to start so that you can go ahead and do the thing you've intended to do that's smoldering in you through the night. You're like a hot oven. Ephraim 
mixes himself with the nations. One of the first things that Israel was told when they were brought into the promised land was that they were not to intermarry with the nations that surrounded them. And yet, right away, they started making deals because they lived border to border with the Arameans, with the Assyrians, with the Egyptians that they had to deal with. And right away, they begin intermarrying. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Okay, that's that phrase that I began describing at the beginning. So all of this, in summary, says they're evil from the top down. Their kings are evil. Their princes are drunk and evil. And they are constantly desiring, burning within themselves to do more evil things. And it's because they've been interacting with their foreign neighbors and with their gods rather than with me. They should be dealing with me exclusively, but instead they're dealing with all of these foreign gods that they're intermixing with and intermingling with. And as a consequence, they're like a cake that's only cooked on one side. They're halting between two opinions. They're two-faced. They say they love me, and meanwhile, they commit their adulteries. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and yet he does not know it. This, this is a phrase that he's going to use a couple of times. He says, you're being devoured. You're being eaten up with your evil. And you don't know it. You don't see it. You don't recognize it. You don't comprehend it. I think in the next chapter, God's going to say that Israel did some things. And God says, and I didn't know it. It's actually the word yada. If you've ever gone yada, 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 that's a good Hebrew term. And it's a word that doesn't just mean no, like he wasn't aware that it happened. But it's to give approval of something. And so he says, here they're just doing things that they're not comprehending. They don't know what they're doing. They're not giving approval of it. It's just, it's just happening all around them. Which is the way that evil works. Evil is so pernicious that it will happen all around you and happen in your life and happen far too often in your household or in your family, whatever. And you're just so busy going along and not being careful. Not thinking about the things of God. Not taking every thought captive, not concentrating on the things of God, and then you wake up one day and you say, how do we get this far? Now, that's what happened with Israel. They just kept slipping. They just kept getting worse. It just kept coming. It just kept happening. And then they were to the point where strangers were devouring their strength. They were being attacked all the time now by the Arameans at this point in 1 Kings. And God is about to turn them over to the Assyrians completely who are going to take them out of their land and take them into captivity. Well, it didn't happen overnight. That happened because over the course of time, they just kept letting it slip away. They just weren't paying attention. They weren't concentrating on the things of God. They weren't meditating on his word and on his law. They weren't concentrating their worship on him. And as a consequence, things just kept slipping away before they even knew it. And the next phrase says, gray hairs also are sprinkled on him. And yet he does not know it. There are two ways that that can be read. One is they're just getting old and infirm. And they don't know it. The other way is that gray hair, oftentimes in the Bible, is a sign of age and wisdom. And there are several commands in the Old Testament to pay attention 
to the hoary head, says King James. That just means men of white hair, men who've been around long enough to know some stuff. Pay attention to what they have to say. And of course, one of Israel's problems is that they stopped listening to the intelligent people. So strangers are devouring their strength, and yet they do not know it. Gray hairs are sprinkled on them, and yet they do not know it. And though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have neither returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all of this. So God's laying out his case. And he's saying they're guilty on so many different fronts. But first and foremost, over the fact that they've chased after other gods, and intermingled with the people I told them not to intermingle with, and now they're going to lose their nation. They're going to lose their strength. They're going to go into captivity, and they don't even care. They don't even know it. They're not crying out to me yet. They're not coming to me and saying, deliver us from the Aramean. No, they're, they're so busy thinking they're fine because their kings are evil and their princes are drunk, and the whole nation is just sliding into decay. And so he says, though the pride of Israel testifies against him. Look at that phrase. What's Israel's problem when you boil it right down? Strip away all the details. What's the core problem? Pride. Jennifer mouthed it because she was afraid to say it out loud for fear that she would seem proud. (laughs) Pride. How often have we seen this time and time and time again in the Bible? the chief element of our sinfulness, of our depravity, the thing that really creates the separation between humans and God is human arrogance, human pride, human self-sufficiency. The sense of, I am getting away with it. We are doing this. We are governing ourselves. We are making up our own mind. We are denying the word of God. We are creating our own morality. We are creating our own set of ethics, and we're not going to worry about what God says, and we're getting away with it. That's pride. That's arrogance. That's ego. And notice that God says, I haven't forgotten any of it. I know everything you've done. It's right here in front of my face. I know all your wickedness. I know all your evil. I know your debauchery. I know you're chasing it for I know it all. I just haven't punished you yet. But I will. God is long-suffering, but he will. And even though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they've neither returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all of this. What does that tell you, by the way, about the cure for your sin and pride? How many times have you heard me say, the cure for your problem's not in you? The solution for your problem is not in you. I think I just said it this past Sunday. If you could do better, you would. If you had the capability to be better, you'd be better. But you're not because you can't. So the solution clearly is not in you. And yet in our phenomenal ego, we keep thinking we're the solution. Or we keep thinking that we collectively as human beings can find a solution. Maybe we'll just elect the right guy. Maybe the next guy, he'll fix it. You know, then we're going to be okay. There's got to be some kind of human solution to our cumulative national sin problem. God says, no, there's not. It's not in you. Look what the solution is. You have to return to the Lord their God. You have to seek him. 
It's the only solution, and that's the one thing people won't do. Still the solution today, right? What's the solution to our difficulties, to our national problems? Seek God. And we will. We will do it quickly as soon as we're attacked. Cut off the food supply. Run to God. You'll see Congress back out on the steps praying to God and singing God Bless America like we did after September 11th. We'll all be talking about, oh, God bless America. We need God so bad. But not now. Not now, because we're fine now. Right now, we're fine. Right now, we got food. Right now, we feel safe. Now, right now, we have the illusion of safety. So we're like, oh, we're good. Don't worry. God says, I remember it all. It's one thing for you to call on God when things are bad. But he expects for you to call on him all the time. All the time. Because he deserves your worship all the time. The truth of the matter is, if any of us ever really got a glimpse of who God was, or if any of us really got a glimpse of what hell is, we'd never get off our face. We'd never get up off the ground. We'd have people bring us food so that we could stay on our knees worshiping God. But we're so busy doing our own thing, so busy thinking we're self-sufficient, so busy self-governing, that we far too often forget that the ruler of the universe knows it all, remembers it all. It's constantly in front of his face. And so for all this, they just refuse to come to God. They don't seek God. So what does he say about them? He says, Ephraim has become like a silly dove. I like that phrase. Believe it or not, I used to own a dove. No, really. <laughs> because in my family, we grew up magicians. My dad, being a magician and a clown, taught all of us kids how to do magic tricks growing up as a way to get us in front of people so that we wouldn't be afraid of public speaking. I had no idea that he was preparing me for this. And so we owned a rabbit and we owned a dove. It's the stupidest animal you've ever seen in your life. It was just a little tiny head. Little tiny head, yeah. He used to live, this is true, when we lived in Houston, he lived in our fireplace. His name was Danny Boy. And since we never lit fires in Houston, but we had that little gas tube that came out, so you could have a gas fire. And he perched on there. We would just put newspaper under there. And we had the black grill that would open and close in front of the fireplace. That just became his cage. He lived inside there. I saw him once fly flat into a wall. <laughs> flat, 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 flat. <laughs> his name was Denny Boy. Anyways, I said all that to say I have firsthand knowledge, which is why I enjoy this verse. That God, who is intimately aware of how intelligent he made every single creature on his planet, God, who can take the time talking about how industrious ants are, God, who can talk about how cunning snakes are, God, who can talk about how stubborn donkeys are, is the same God who could say, doves, not real bright. <laughs> and he knows it because he made them like that. And he uses the Hebrew word that uh, the translation's right. It's silly, mindless. And he says that's what Israel's become, like a mindless bird. 
Silly. Not thinking, not rational, not being intelligent at all. Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. They should have gone to God. He says, they don't seek me. They don't come after me. What do they do? They go to their neighboring countries who are their enemies and try to make deals that they think are going to secure them. And God says, that's dumb. When they go, I will spread my net over them, which is how you catch a bird, by the way. And I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. And I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly, which is woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Okay, so now think for a moment. Fast forward, New Testament. Jesus walking on the planet, Matthew talks about it, we'll get to it in the weeks to come, where he says to the leaders of Israel as he's looking over Jerusalem, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children that you weren't willing. Same thing here. This is their history. This is how they've always been. When Jesus said that, he wasn't just plucking that out of thin air. He was saying what the prophets have always said to Israel because he was the final cumulative prophet. He was the final prophet sent to Israel. And he says to them the same thing that the former prophets said. God is perfectly willing to redeem you, to gather you, to gather your children under his wings the way that a hen gathers her baby chicks. I would have done that for you. Another bird analogy there. I would have done that for you, but, but you weren't willing. Here God says, you've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Which, by the way, is the very definition of insanity. If you understand the least little bit about who God is and what he's capable of and that he made everything and that he calls himself the redeemer of Israel, it's one of the names God assigns to himself, then why would you go chase after Israel? Egypt, when that's where God delivered you out of, why would you go make a deal with the Arameans or the Assyrians when they're the ones that are trying to kill you and destroy you? Why wouldn't you run to God? What do they do instead? Lie about him. In what way are they lying about him? Well, I think in context, they're lying about him in saying that he's equal with these other gods. There's all these foreign gods, there's these Baals, we've got the Ishtar, we've got the groves, we've got the mountains, we've got the golden calves, we've got all the stuff, and then we've also got Yahweh. But he's worshipped down there in Jerusalem in that temple, and that's a thing that the southern tribes do. So we've got him, but then we've also got all these other gods, and God says, that's a lie, because I'm the one and the only God. There are no other gods. I suspect that's right at the top of the list of the lies they speak. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. Okay, now this is interesting. In this next portion of this chapter, he's going to say, they do cry out for me occasionally. When? 
when they're in trouble. What have we seen through the whole Old Testament from Genesis all the way to 2 Kings so far? That's how far we've gone, verse by verse through the Old Testament. And the pattern is consistent. The pattern is God puts them in the promised land. He keeps his promises to them. He protects them from their enemies. He gives them plenty to eat and drink. And then a couple generations later, they forget about him and they rebel because they forget about the deliverance. And so then God instructs them by bringing their enemies against them. Philistines come in, cause all kinds of trouble, and then God would send them judges. That's what the book of Judges is all about. Before they had their own kings or armies or anything, he would send a judge, and the judge would come in and lead Israel, and they would fight against their enemies, and they would have a great victory, and then they'd be safe again. And that generation that experienced that would continue in the ways of God for a little while, and then their children would start rebelling, and their grandchildren, two, three generations down the line, it was always the same. How many times do we read it? God would give them 40 years of peace, you know, and then it'd start again. You get about a generation in. And then next thing you know, people are rebelling again, rebelling again. So God kept bringing enemies against them to instruct them. And then every time that they got comfortable again, they'd rebel against God again. But whenever it got bad, they would cry to God. So God reaches the point where he says, they cry to me, but not even from their heart anymore. And it's like, well, we're really in trouble. You know what we need? Well, let's, let's cry to God. Let's try that. It worked in the past. We'll do some God crying. They do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves, but they turn away from me. So they get together in their solemn assemblies. But why? So I give them grain and new wine. What do they really want? They want whatever satisfies them. They don't want me. And so they do what people have far too often done with God. They create a notion of God where his purpose is to supply for us. Like God's purpose is to make me happy. The reason God exists is to make sure I have everything I need. As long as I'm healthy and I'm comfortable and I'm well-fed, plenty of grain, plenty of new wine, got to keep the new wine coming, plenty, as long as I'm fat and sassy and happy, then that's why God exists. That theology exists to this very day, where people cannot define the purpose of God, the point of God, why does God exist? They don't understand that God exists independent of all human beings and that he is righteous, holy, good, and eternal in and of himself and that human beings exist for his glory. They get it all backwards and they say, God exists for my good. No, you exist for God's good. And he will be glorified in the praises and the worship of his people just as much as he'll be glorified in the judgment of his enemies. In either case, he's glorified. And so that idea has been around forever where people get the God idea backwards and they end up saying, well, for the sake of the grain and the new wine, they assemble themselves. But they turn away from me. Even when they wail, even when they cry from their heart on their bed, it's, it's not from their heart for me. And although, verse 15, and although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. That's God saying, every time that they've been delivered, every time that I've given them rest from their enemies, I strengthen their arms. 
That doesn't mean their arms. It wasn't, they don't have big biceps. It was their, their military arms. God says the reason that they won sometimes in war and lost sometimes in war is because that's what I decided. That's what I determined. And the reason that they, look at them now, look at Israel over there right now, that is a sliver of land compared to the nations around them. How many Israels could you fit in Iran? Plenty. Or Turkey. Or Iraq. Or Egypt. Or, I mean, they're surrounded by their enemies, and yet they exist. Well, that was the same way back then. They were surrounded by their enemies, but they had their piece of land. And God said, the reason that happened is because I strengthened them. I strengthened their arms. I gave them the military might that it took to ward off their enemies. When they won in war and in battle, it's because I gave them the victory. And yet, what do they do? What's their response? They devise evil against me. That's insane. Okay, the God who gave you breath, the God who gives you the ability to know your own name, the God who makes sure that you have food to eat and clothing on your back, the God who sustains you in this lifetime, gives you the health that you have, the same God who is going to be the great eternal judge who is either going to welcome you into his kingdom where you are joined there with Christ or who is going to cast you into outer darkness. It seems to me that that would be somebody you really ought to pay attention to. And yet he says, they devise evil against me despite the fact that I made them safe, I gave them food, I gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. I've given them all this. And what's their response? They hate me. Turn against me. Chase after foreign gods. They turn away from me. They devise evil against me. They turn. That's the idea of repentance even. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. He says they turn, but not upward. They turn, but not to their improvement. They turn, and their turning makes it all the worse for them. They turn, but not upward. They are a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword. Because of the insolence of their tongue. And that takes you all the way back to, they speak lies against me. When they cry to me, it's not from their heart. They turn away from me, and they devise evil against me. And then he boils it down to the insolence of their tongue. Their speech about me is wrong. What they say about me is wrong. And in the larger context here, I think the chief thing that is wrong about what they're saying is that they're saying good things about themselves and bad things about him. You know, we're good, we're right, we're fine, we're, we're sufficient, we can take care of ourselves. But they tell lies about God, they speak evil against God, they speak lies against me. All of that comes up ahead of verse 16, that there is insolence in their tongue. Now, of course, you know, when you get into the New Testament, especially in the book of James, James has a lot to say about protecting your tongue. Thinking about what you say. Be careful what you speak. He compares it to a ship, a grand ship, great big ship, that he says is steered by a little rudder. Have you ever seen these giant ocean liners? If you go behind it and you look at the rudder, the rudder, comparatively to the ship, is quite small. 
And yet James says, the whole ship is turned by that little rudder. And the comparison then is obvious. Your <laughs> tongue affects the whole rest of your being. So you have to be careful how you talk and what you say. Because your words actually matter, which is why Jesus would say you're going to give account for every idle word, every little thing you've spoken. Because of the insolence of their tongue, and this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. So God is going to judge them. The judgment is coming. We'll pick up in chapter 8 next week. God's going to start right out with your enemies are coming. Like an eagle, the enemy is coming against the house of the Lord. He's about to bring about the Assyrian captivity. He's going to bring their enemies down on them. But he's making sure that they know from the beginning that it's their fault. So that they can't say, well, why is this happening? God is making clear, God is making sure that they understand that it's their fault. Now, you started putting your Bibles away because I said we'd pick up in chapter 8 next week. Did you think we were finished? Okay, well, we are, but that's okay. I just, I just wondered. <laughs> you all seemed kind of anxious. Now, as I've said for a couple of weeks, there's so much more. The prophets all speak with a singular voice. They all tell the same story. The story they do not tell is that the church is true Israel. They don't tell that story. They do not say that the church and Israel are one, and they do not say that the promises that God makes to Israel belong to any other people group than Israel. That is consistent all the way through, and there are so many other places we can go. I have a whole list of other prophets we can look at, some of whom don't start uh, prophesying until the time that Judah is taken out of their land. But there are three other minor prophets that are concurrent here with Hosea, who we'll probably look at before we even go back to 2 Kings. And all I want you to get out of this exercise is that God keeps saying the same thing over and over again to a particular people group who have a history of God saying to them and doing to them exactly what he says. If he says, I'm going to deliver Israel after 70 years, and then he delivers them after 70 years, and then he says, and I'll take you back to your land and plant you, then those are the people he means, I'm going to take you back to your land and plant you. Why is that so difficult for people to understand? But there's so much of it, lots and lots of it. So in the weeks to come, we will continue working our way through the minor prophets and sprinkling in some major prophets and continue to see the details of what God says about Israel. Okay? Okay. Questions? I was thinking about the fact that he's talking about the northern tribes, too. This is, not this is all about the northern tribes. Right. I mean, so when we say... You know, the church is Israel. It's like, well, that's bad because that means we're the ten northern tribes that have been lost since the Assyrian captivity. So all of a sudden, words have great meaning. And you're like, well, maybe we could be the church is Judah. How do we say that? This is, a, you're, you're thinking exactly right, Jennifer, because this is why I keep saying the details don't work. Right. The details don't correspond to the church Israel replacement thing. Or if you don't like the replacement language, if you say that the church and Israel are the same, they're true Israel, the details don't work. Because then you got to say, okay, then where did God ever curse the church and drive them out of the land 
that was given to them as an eternal promise, where does that happen? And in what way do you allegorize that to apply it to the church? And if you're going to say the church is Israel, but you don't understand, as you just said, the division of the ten northern tribes to the two southern tribes, are you saying the church is Israel, the northern tribes, Ephraim, who have been scattered now for 2,600 years? Or are you saying they're the southern tribes, they're Judah, except that Judah still exists. There are still Jews. So where's the church there? I, the details just don't work. The details don't fit. You have to allow God to say what God says. And in that case, you have to say Israel's Israel, the church's church. Because the promises are different. The language is different. Here's, here's an obvious one. I'll get right to you, sorry. Here's an obvious one. God says repeatedly in speaking to Israel, I was a husband to you. That's the whole point of the book of Hosea. Go marry a prostitute. Because Israel has been like a prostituting wife to me. My wife. She's my wife. What's the church called? Bride of Christ. Okay, is that different? Well, yes, that's different. So we just have to allow that the differences exist. And when you conflate them, you can't help but get confused because then you end up saying that stuff that is promised to Israel belongs to the church when it can't. It, it just can't. Yes, sir. Well, when I spent years in uh, covenantal churches, I kept coming up with these inconsistencies and conflicts, and I just had to mentally turn them off because uh, if I wanted the fellowship, I had to do that. Yeah. And, uh, but they troubled me all the time. May I tell you something I love about you, Conrad? You and Marilyn both. But when you guys first came to GCA X number of years ago, how many years has it been? 100 years ago. <laughs> it's about 100 years. Long time. When you first came here and you said to me that you were Orthodox Presbyterian, mm -hmm. and you said, is that okay with you? I said, it is, but I'll tell you now that I'm going to walk all over your covenantalism. And I said, and I'm not trying to, but the Bible's going to do that. And you guys stuck it out and stuck it out and stuck it out. And some Sundays I thought, oh, man, I just stomped all over there. To, I just, and they kept coming back. And good for you, because you're right. The, the tough thing to do is to weed through all that stuff and say, okay, this is biblical, this isn't. And then get rid of stuff that you held on to for a very, very long time. From birth. So, yeah, so good for you. I mean, it's one of the things I admire very much about the two of you is that you've allowed the Bible to conform your thinking instead of just clinging to your system and saying, no, we're not going to have that. So good for you. And doing that with your hands. And I don't know why. I don't know what that is. Rock'em, sock'em robots. I don't know what that was. So. <laughs> and I really don't know about all that <laughs> Good for you. You're fortunate. Anything else? We're good? All right. Say goodnight to the digital congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.